2: Please be advised, this episode contains explicit descriptions of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised.
4: I've been thinking a lot lately about the people who save us, who shine a light and help us see a way forward, even when our lives seem hopeless and bleak. These people aren't necessarily our parents, or grandparents, or aunts or uncles. They don't have to be related to us by blood, or live under the same roof. When we encounter them, as children, as teenagers, or even later in life, we don't always recognize them as our guardian angels. But this is what they are. My guest today is Debbie Millman, and this episode is about the possibility of extraordinary resilience in the face of violence and trauma, and the redemptive power of love and strength found in the unlikeliest of places.
5: I mean, I think that... The best advice that I could give to anybody who's had this experience or is having this experience is seek help. Seek help. There was once, and I don't know if it still exists, it probably does in some parts of the world, in some parts of the United States, where even seeking help is a a statement of weakness. And that's not the case. It's the biggest possible strength that a person could have is to say, I need help. I need help.
4: Debbie is a force of nature. Designer, author, artist, illustrator, branding genius, and co-founder of the world's first master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. She's also one of the most luminous, soulful people I know. It's an honor to share her story. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets, secrets that are kept from us, secrets we keep from others, and secrets we keep from ourselves. So I would like to begin by asking you about the landscape of your childhood, your family, the town you grew up in. Um, Can you just talk to me a little bit about little Debbie?
5: Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm a native New Yorker, I was born in Brooklyn in 1961, and we lived there, my mother and my father and me, uh, for two years. And then they moved me to Howard Beach, Queens, and I lived in Howard Beach until the middle of third grade. And by that time, they had had another child, my younger brother, who's two and a half years younger than I am. And in the middle of third grade, my dad bought his own pharmacy. He was a pharmacist and had worked in Manhattan at a pharmacy that no longer exists, a a mom-and-pop type shop called City Drug. And that was across the street from uh, the Carnegie Deli. And I remember him uh, telling me as I was growing up that uh, Bernadette Peters used to come into the pharmacy quite a lot, and he thought she was rather spectacular. Um, And so we moved to Staten Island in the middle of third grade and lived there until the end of fifth grade. In that time, my parents ended up getting divorced. And at the end of fifth grade, by the end of fifth grade, my mom was getting remarried and moved my brother, me, and her new husband, who had two daughters of his own, to Long Island. And I lived on Long Island from sixth grade until the end of 12th grade. And then immediately hightailed it to college and uh, never went back to Long Island to live.
4: Debbie falls out of touch with her father for several years after her parents' divorce and only reconnects with him when she's 12 or 13 years old. Her most positive memories of that time are very connected to one particular person, a woman named Betty, who was in a long relationship with Debbie's dad.
5: Betty lived on 24th Street in Chelsea, and she was, um, I guess, what you'd call a career girl. You know, she was, uh, she lived by herself in a studio apartment on the third floor of a brownstone. She was a typist. That's what she did. But she was fiercely independent and really celebrated and relished in her independence. I thought she was very beautiful. She did everything effortlessly well, and she was kind to me. And she was one of the first consistently kind people to me in my life. And I think it was watching the way she moved through the world, her independence, her strong-mindedness about what was just, her efforts to protect me when my father had... Um, anger episodes. Those were things that I think embedded her deeply in, in me. And as an impressionable young girl, she was the first role model I think I actually encountered. Somebody that I could see living their own life on their own terms, supporting themselves. And I think that's really what ultimately influenced me. I wanted to dress like her. I wanted to live like her. Um, I wanted to be her.
4: Kindness was in short order in the homes Debbie grew up in. She has described her father as both brilliant and turbulent.
5: My dad was very charismatic and he had a wonderful oratory talent that he used quite well. So he was able to express himself with a lot of conviction. He was very tall. He was very handsome. He was fast on his feet, very witty. Uh, but he also had, and it was quite hidden most of the time, um, a really intense temper. And that temper could be triggered by just about anything. You never really knew when it was going to emerge and what would trigger it. And so I don't really ever remember a time in my life when I wasn't afraid of him because I was terrified that something that I did inadvertently would cause him to blow up. And so I was always very scared around him. In as much as I was also, and this is sort of where it gets complicated, really trying to get his approval and really wanting very badly for him to be proud of me and to love me. And there was no question in my mind that he did love me. It was just really, really hard for him to express.
4: Well, and what you're describing, too, that hair trigger, like living in a situation where you don't know what's going to set it off.
5: Exactly, exactly. And so good times could immediately become horrific because somebody would say something or do something or he would get angry about something and then suddenly everybody was on, on watch.
4: Debbie's father doesn't become physically violent until she's a bit older. The first episode she remembers involves Betty, Thanksgiving and a turkey.
5: We were eating, and I remember there was a a football game on, and he was watching it, and he ended up um, getting very angry with all of us for not being appreciative enough and happy enough. He always wanted us to be happy. He threw the turkey across the room and started to chase Betty around the room, and then She tried to get away from him by running outside, and then he ran outside after her and picked up a shovel and was chasing her through the woods um, and then came back alone. We were not allowed to go outside to help her. He didn't hit her, but he locked her out and kept her locked out all night, and she ended up sleeping in the unlocked car. Thankfully, that was open. And um, that memory is, is just seared into my brain, and I'll never forget that.
4: While her dad is chasing Betty around the yard, Debbie and her brother hide in the bathroom and lock the door. Eventually, things calm down, and her father becomes contrite, tries to pave over his behavior with extravagant gifts and gestures. But the pockets of peace never last very long.
5: That was the the first time I, I witnessed any violence um, but then later he'd be throwing things. I don't know that he ever, ever hit any of the women he was with, with his hands. That I'd never witnessed but I did witness a lot of throwing things, rocks, furniture, lamps, um, some of which would, would hit hit us or hit her. And that was, that was really hard, really hard.
4: Yeah, really, really hard to have a parent with such a terrible and unpredictable temper. But the incident with the turkey and Betty? That's nothing compared with what comes next. We're going to pause for a moment. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs.
1: If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too.
7: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Debbie's newly divorced mom attends a meeting of parents without partners. Imagine Match.com for divorced or widowed people, except in real life, on folding chairs, probably in a church basement. And there, Debbie's mom meets and marries her next Mr. Wrong.
5: She married a man who um was brutal you know whatever anger issues my dad had at that point, you know he had never ever beaten me or my mother um he had he had a temper, and I was terrified of that temper as far back as I can remember, but I had never witnessed anybody actually hitting anybody until he came into our lives, and he hit all of us. He hit my brother repeatedly. He beat me. He beat his own daughter once so badly she couldn't go to school. He would beat me and my brother every time we did come back from my dad, from a weekend with my dad. At that point, I have to say it was my choice to say I, I, I'm i not going to see him anymore because I couldn't bear being beaten. Now, my dad didn't protest it. He didn't go to court to try to continue to see us. The He did stop paying his child support, so my mom had to take him to court.
4: Okay, I just want to be sure you're hearing what's happening here. Debbie is put in the insanely impossible, heartbreaking position of either A, seeing her dad and being beaten for that offense by her stepdad, or B, not seeing her dad.
5: I remember going with her to court, And I remember getting all dressed up that morning because I wanted to look pretty so that maybe when he saw me, he'd try to rescue me, (laughs) but he didn't show up. I was wearing a dress that my mother had made me. She was a seamstress and made all my clothes pretty much. Um, And it was a orange and pink and white, tiny little flowers pattern all over the fabric. And it had um, puff sleeves and I was wearing a pair of white boots, and I thought I looked really, really good, um, and thought he would think that too, but he never
7: showed up.
4: Debbie has another memory of being on the front porch of her house. Her father has come by to give her a birthday present, and her mother and stepfather won't let him in the house, so Debbie has to go out on the porch. And Debbie's father wants her to tell him that she wants the present, that she really, really wants the present. And she does. She really wants it. She feels guilty for wanting it because her mother and stepfather have told her that her dad is a bad guy. But finally, she admits that she wants it.
5: And at that point, I guess my mother and stepfather were so worried about what he would say or do, Um, That he turned on the intercom in an effort to listen to what was happening, Uh, but they pressed the wrong button and music went on instead of the the microphone. And so I, I stood there and I think we were all, there was all this sense of humiliation and shame and fear and longing.
4: I want to talk about shame. It's almost redundant to say that shame is a taboo subject. I mean, it's practically synonymous with taboo. But over and over again, what I see in my life as a writer, as a teacher of writing, and as host of this podcast, is that so many of us walk around feeling consumed by shame. And that feeling is one of being very, very much alone. And the only cure, the only way to blast our way out of that horrible isolation chamber of shame, is to speak to its source. To tell the truth, Because, I can promise you this, whatever we feel the most ashamed of is also what makes us most beautifully, imperfectly, profoundly human. Things go from very bad to very much worse. Debbie's stepfather, the one who her mom met in the Parents Without Partners meeting, is not only beating Debbie. That's not all.
5: The real dark, dark, dark years were between 1972 and and 1975. So right after they got divorced and right before I was reunited with my dad. So 72, 73, 74, 75 were were the dark years of of my life because this man who my mother married um, was not only physically violent and not only emotionally violent, he was also sexually violent and was a... um, and 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 raped me repeatedly from the time I was um maybe ten and a half eleven, twelve, thirteen in those years um until until he finally until my mother finally divorced him um i It was a very different time than it is now, and at that time in my life, Danny, I didn't know that something like this could happen to anyone. like it just was something that didn't seem conceivable to even happen, and I thought I was the only person in the world this was happening to. He was very strong, he had been a professional boxer in Germany, he was German, and told me that if I ever told anyone that he would kill my brother, and I believed him. He beat my brother repeatedly and treated him terribly while we were all together. But I and I really thought that he would and could and he said he had it all figured out. And so I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody. I actually didn't know that it ever happened to anybody else until I read a letter in Newsday. I was I loved getting the newspaper. My parent my mother got the newspaper, they got it every day and I'd read the comics and do the cryptograms and there was a letter to Ann Landers about somebody who was writing to her about being abused, and she urged that person to tell someone. And I cut the letter out and put it under my mattress because I suddenly realized I wasn't alone. But for years and years, I was too afraid to tell anybody because I was really 100% convinced, you know, I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, that I would be responsible for my brother's death. And so I didn't tell anyone. No one.
4: Imagine a little girl who cuts a letter out of a newspaper and keeps it under her bed to remind herself that she is not alone. To give words to what's happening to her, even if she is unable to speak these words for many years. This conversation between Debbie and me took place during the few days following the courageous testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and the response of Brett Kavanaugh to her testimony. The idea being, there was no corroboration. The idea being, why didn't she say something at the time? The idea being, it's her word against his. The sense of the aloneness that you must have felt, and not having the language for it, right? Right
5: not even having the neural pathways to understand what was happening. I had no idea. No idea.
4: At some point, when she's 12 or 13, Debbie gets her period. And then she doesn't get her period. She becomes petrified that she's pregnant. She doesn't speak the truth to a single soul. Instead, she makes up a story. Because what else can she do? Who can she turn to?
5: I ended up concocting a story and I told my mother that I had been assaulted at school and she took me to a doctor. She also informed the school and and then I had all the added guilt of lying and she took me to a doctor and the doctor examined me. And the doctor told my mother that it was not possible that this was a one-off situation because of the scar tissue that I had. And told her instead that I must be lying because I must have had a boyfriend Mm. because of what he saw as repetitive activity.
4: A 12-year-old girl, a sixth grader, must have a boyfriend. That must be it.
5: So I wasn't believed. And I just had to continue on. My mother never confronted me about it. She didn't accuse me of lying.
4: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Bean Dad. The Dress.
1: 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online.
8: Listen to Woke Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So let's fast forward more than 40 years. Debbie tells me that during Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh's testimony just a couple of days earlier, while she's glued to the television along with so many women in America, her mother texts her and asks how she's doing.
5: I wrote her back and said, you know, it's been a difficult and challenging couple of days. And we then got into a back and forth text conversation. And I once again asked her how it was possible during the time that it was happening to me, because it all happened in the house where we all lived in the one bathroom that that we had in that house with the door locked, how she could not know, how could she not know that this was happening to me? And she insists that she didn't. And, And at this point, I really do believe her because I don't think that she would have been able to live with herself if she did believe that it was happening. Nevertheless, um, she told me something that I didn't know before, which was that after she told my stepfather what had happened to me in school, that he responded with such indifference that it was only then that she knew what had happened. And that makes a lot of sense now because she never berated me for lying. She never accused me of having a boyfriend. And then very, very shortly after that experience, she did divorce him.
4: It's amazing the way a family secret can continue to reveal itself and reveal itself over the course of a lifetime, like this other layer that you, in your mid-50s, discover.
5: Yes, yes. Because if somebody had said, well, what? why did your mother ultimately leave your stepfather? I would have said, I actually don't know. I just assumed it was because he was you know, a heinous person. Um, and now I know.
4: Remember how I said this is a story of resilience? Well, that's feeling a little bit too easy to me. We bat around the word resilience a lot. It falls into a basket of words like authenticity, vulnerability, ideas that many of us like a lot, see value in, but aren't sure exactly how to achieve. This next part is what most inspires me. Not the horrific story of abuse you've just heard, but the story of a spirit that was greater than the violence perpetrated on it. This, my friends, is about the deepest kind
5: of triumph. You know, your brain can only, only accept what it thinks it can tolerate, and I wish that I had the memory of every single assault that was perpetrated on me. I wish that I remembered every single time so that I could figure out a way to erase it somehow. I mean, I wish. I remember the first time. I remember specific times, but I don't remember every time. But I do remember walking one day on the sidewalk of my neighborhood in, in on Long Island thinking, if only this wasn't happening to me, I would be the happiest person alive.
4: Just think about what it takes to formulate that thought. If only this wasn't happening to me, I would be the happiest person alive.
5: I am only now 30 years into analysis and therapy, really trying to understand how did I actually manage through that? And I always wanted a better life. I started therapy two years out of college. So I did six years of therapy with one, uh, with one counselor, and then went into like a real analysis that began in 1991. And I've been working with the same doctor ever since. And so she saved my life. She has given me a way out of that horror. I was, a, I was functional and I'm very fortunate that I was never addicted to drugs and I was never um, self-destructive. But I think that wanting so much more and also being creative and seeing that I could make things allowed me to essentially escape An otherwise really dismal, dismal experience.
4: Yeah, let's talk about that because I feel like so much of your story and mine in this regard has to do with being saved in a way by creativity, uh, by art.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: Do you know the term narrative medicine?
5: No. No.
4: Yeah, but I love it. <laughs> interesting. I, knew, I thought you would. It's it's a it's a it's a relatively new literary field, and I remember the first time I heard it, um, and I heard it in relation to my own work, to my memoirs. That you know that what I have been doing all these years, without having the term for it, is narrative medicine in some way. And I kind of recoiled against it because it felt a little bit too self-helpy to me, or too much like writing as therapy or journaling. Um, but I've come to understand what it means to share a story, to shape a story, to craft to craft art out of the chaos of a life.
5: Well, I, I, because I thought about this so much, I've come to the conclusion that my longing for a better life was bigger than my shame about my existing life. And so that is what propelled me forward. I also, the older I've gotten, the less secretive I've been. And I kept the, my abuse and, and violation and even, even the, the fundamental um, dysfunction in my relationship with my dad pretty much secret until the last five years. I was really ashamed of of what happened to me. I felt that I would be seen as damaged or inferior and told my closest friends and, and, and partners, but was not in any way a spokesperson for overcoming trauma or abuse. And initially, it was more uh, motivated by... A sense of not letting those bad experiences sort of win or overtake the theme of my life, and I would always tell people, well, I, w- you know, I'm not going to give into that. I'm not going to uh, let that stop me. And in fact, you, you, you don't have the capacity to let it stop you or not. It will impact you if you don't deal with it. It will catch up to you and overtake you if you don't. It's only really in the last couple of years that I've become very transparent about these experiences with, with my close friends and partners and, and colleagues. Um, this is the most substantial conversation I've ever had about it in any kind of public forum.
4: Debbie did briefly touch on her history of abuse when she was a guest on The Tim Ferriss Show a couple of years back. Tim, who is as prepared as he is intuitive as a host, asked Debbie about her work as a board member for the Joyful Heart Foundation, an organization dedicated to eradicating sexual violence. On their website, Tim had noticed a comment of Debbie's about her work for Joyful Heart. She said that it made her entire life make sense. And Tim wondered, what did she mean by that?
5: Do I tell the truth? This is this I mean, at that point it wasn't a, a secret, but it was very private, really private. This was my personal trauma. I'm I'm now gonna like talk to one of the most popular podcast hosts in the world about this very personal, very tender trauma. And I just took that, as you put it, Danny, so well, that step into courage. And I told my story. I told it for the first time. And Life has not been the same since. <laughs> you know, Tim's show is a really popular show. I get emails every single week, sometimes every day. And that podcast was done several years ago with people sharing and disclosing and needing help or wanting resources. And um, and now I'm having this conversation with you because I did talk to some degree to Tim about it, but not, not to this degree. Not to this degree.
4: I guess I'm I'm wondering how it has felt for you as this has stopped being a secret. Because what are secrets? Secrets are built on shame. If we keep a secret, it's because we feel afraid, guilty, uh, most often ashamed that somehow alone, you know, that somehow uh, this is not an okay way to be, it's not an okay way to feel. And when we actually... Um, explode that there's something on the other side of that. Can you talk about that at all?
5: Absolutely. Um, You know, you said something to me after I interviewed you on our podcast that I've repeated probably thousands of times at this point. You and I were having, I don't know if you remember this, but we were having a conversation about confidence at that point in time, like three or four books on confidence had come out and somehow it it came up in our conversation and you very, very um, clearly said, oh, I think confidence is overrated. And I stopped and was like, what? Because <laughs> this is something I've been searching for my entire life, confidence. And you said, oh, I think it's overrated. I think that, you know, overly confident people are mostly obnoxious. And I said, well, then what, how do you, how do you exist in the world? And, and you said, I think what is more important than confidence is courage, courage, courage to take that first step. And then my life was changed, (laughs) because I was like, okay, courage, courage is what you need. Sharing allowed for a certain camaraderie from others that were also abused, that suddenly we could look at each other and say, me too, in a really profound way. There's also parts of me now, and looking back on it, you know, why didn't I tell anybody? Okay, I know you killed my brother, but why didn't I run away? And, I, and I'm and i thinking about it now as the adult that I am, not as a little girl that had no place to run or was afraid that her brother would be killed or was powerless to a much larger, stronger person who was supposed to take care of me. Um, and, and trying to make sense of all of that is likely going to be a lifetime, take me a lifetime. But I don't hate myself as much as I did for it having happened at all. And and I still really grapple. You know, there is not a a, a, a pat ending to this story or this experience. I grapple a lot. It's all an evolution. And I can look back and at my 20s and my 30s and my 40s and now in my 50s. And what I can sincerely tell you is that every decade has gotten better and every year has gotten better despite mishaps or, you know, bad experiences or sad experiences or heartbreak, what I can tell you is that there's not a year that's gone by in my continuing to try to understand it and make sense of it and make sense of who I am and my place in the world that I can tell you has not gotten better and has not gotten clearer. And I just hope that that will continue over the rest of my life.
4: This really rough story has a really lovely postscript. Remember Betty and her single working girl apartment on West 24th Street in Manhattan that signified for Debbie the possibility of independence, security, glamour, and success? The one happy home experience she had ever known as a kid? Well, guess where Debbie lives now?
5: Um, Because she lived on 24th Street, and that was my one sort of memory of having a happy home experience whenever I would go to restaurants in Chelsea or the High Line, I'd always cut across 24th Street and touch the uh, numbers 449, which is where she lived, uh, on the gate, on the outside gate of the house. And then I ultimately, because of that, was able to uh, buy a place on 24th Street that I saw was for sale. I don't live at 449, but I live really close by and can see it all the time. When I told Betty, she sent me photos that she had of the block um, that that she'd had from from back in the 70s, and she was just so touched and thrilled, and we we still keep in touch, so. She knows where I am and what I'm doing.
4: I'd like to thank my dear friend Debbie Millman for appearing on Family Secrets and sharing her story of courage and resilience. You can find out more about Debbie's work on DebbieMillman.com, and I urge you to listen to her fantastic podcast, Design Matters. I also encourage you to learn more about the Joyful Heart Foundation, which carries out its mission through an integrated program portfolio of healing education, and advocacy for survivors of sexual assault. That's joyfulheartfoundation.org. Family Secrets is an iHeart Media production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Andrew Howard and Tristan McNeil are the audio engineers. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at dannywriter.com. And Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, And Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. That's Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com.
1: Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day.